Take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. As I said, as I was uh, welcoming you just a little bit ago, it's exciting to see uh, on the second Sunday of November such a strong attendance on a Sunday morning. You say, what in the world's the big deal about that? Well, today's the opening, or this weekend's the opening weekend of rifle season for deer hunting. And so uh, I'm surprised to see some of your faces in here. I mean, I know some of you might have killed yesterday, but why can't you go kill today, right? Um, and so it's exciting from that standpoint. It's also the second Sunday that uh, we're in this three-part series talking about vision for our church, which always comes with a price tag. And so I'm excited that you chose to come back and hear uh, round two of, of this three-part series, and it's going to be a good time together this morning. And so if you got your place there in Ephesians chapter 3, uh, we're going to be reading verses 20 and 21 in just a moment. But let me introduce you to two people, two men, Gene and Joe. I should say Joe and Gene. You probably don't know Joe and Gene, but Joe is a, is a guy who loves cars, loves everything that there is to love about cars. I mean, he's the kind of guy that you would refer to as an auto fanatic. He knows all that there is to know. He subscribes to the magazines. He watches the television shows. He has all kinds of videos and, and, and instructional things saved and, and highlighted in his YouTube queue. I mean, he's the guy that is watching, learning. He can tell you everything that there is to know. He's the guy that uh, every year when the new cars come out, he gets the spec sheets. He goes through them. He itemizes them in his mind, and he can talk it with any month. You want to know about a car's engine? Joe's your guy. You want to know how that transmission's going to shift and why it needs to be an eight, eight uh, speed instead of a 10 speed or verse, vice versa? He's the guy to talk about. You want to know about all the intricacies of the computer technology of road handling? Joe is your man. He's a guy that owns a fancy sports car. He owns a tricked out Jeep and he's got that simple day-to-day -day truck for just common driving. The problem with Joe, though, is he has an unfortunate fear of driving. He, he owns the vehicles, he knows about the vehicles, and yet Joe is fearful of driving. He, he rarely actually takes his cars out on the road. Gene, on the other hand, is completely different. Gene appreciates cars, but he really has no love for them. He sees them as a tool. There's, he doesn't have that love affair. They're just simply a reliable tool to get him from point A to point B. And so if Gene finds himself in a conversation, unlike Joe, it, about cars, he's not going to gravitate toward it. He's going to try to do everything he can to get out of that conversation because he doesn't know about, me about mechanical work. He doesn't know about even changing your oil or what tires he needs to have in certain conditions. He doesn't know about road performance. He's lost in those conversations, Gene sees cars simply as the tool to be used, and that's what, exactly what he does. Gene is a delivery driver, and every single day he drives hundreds of miles in a truck. You see, as you think about Joe and Gene, their experiences with cars teach us something. Uh, we learn here that it's possible to know a great deal about cars, great deal about the automobile, uh, to know how the engine works, know to, uh, the intricacies of the transmission and all the things about the vehicle, and yet never use it to go anywhere. I know as you hear me say that, you're thinking, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And you're exactly right. Gene, on the other hand, 
doesn't know a whole lot about vehicles, but he understands they're a tool to be used, and he uses them sufficiently every single day. I tell that made-up story to relate it back to the Bible. I don't know a Joe and a Gene. Well, I do know Joes and Genes, but they don't act like those Joes and Genes. But here's the point. See, it's possible to know a great deal about the Bible. It's possible to know doctrine. It's possible to know about the moral teachings and the promises and the warnings and whatever else you can find in the Bible. It's possible to know all of those things and never put it to use in your life. Some of you, unfortunately, that might be the story of how you've lived your Christian life. See, what we find over and over in the Bible is God's concern for his people. He wants them to know truth. But he wants them to know truth so that they can walk in that truth. God's concerned with what we would call orthodoxy, right doctrine. And God is also concerned with what we would call orthopraxy, right living. He wants you to know the truth. He wants you to walk that truth out in your life. He wants you to put those beliefs and convictions to work. We discover this combination amidst Paul's instruction to the church there in Colossae. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 says this, Paul, therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you've come to know the Lord personally as your Lord and Savior, now walk in relationship with him. Walk in fellowship with the Lord. Allow the truth of who Jesus is to be the truth that you're living We find it also in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, as we're going to see this morning. As we look at the letter to the Ephesians there, you you probably know this, but the first three chapters of these six chapters is about doctrine. It's about orthodoxy. It's about right living, or I should say right believing, right? That's chapters one through three. Then you get into chapter four, five, and six, and it's, all right, let's put these things to the work. Let's put these things to the test in our life. Let's walk these out in our daily living. And so those final three chapters are exhorting us as the reader to live by the truths expounded on in the first three chapters. Paul here was intentional about telling the believers there in Ephesus who they were in Christ and then urging them to live like it today. That's a message we need to know this morning, is it not? We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to know what the Lord's done for us and what the Lord has done in us. Uh, Sometimes we come in here on Sunday mornings and our life has been a mess in the past week because of all of the things, and we're struggling to know who we are. We're struggling to understand God's love for us. In fact, we may come in here on a Sunday thinking, if something monumental doesn't happen in my life, I may just walk away from the faith. I would just ask the question, do you really understand who you are in the Lord? And if so, walk in that. Walk in that truth. That's what Paul's dealing with here as he writes to these believers in Ephesus. So orthodoxy and orthopraxy are the same two things that we as believers need to be concerned with. They're the same things that I as a pastor teacher need to be concerned with on this Sunday morning. See, we want the church to know the power of God in their lives, and we want the church to put that power to use in their lives. We want the power of God in our church, and we want to see that flow in and through us as the church. Variable in all of this comes down to faith. Do we believe God? Do we believe what he says about us? 
Do we understand what he actually says, and then do we believe it? Uh, Going back to that passage in 1 Corinthians I read earlier, he says, and such were some of you. What's the point there? Hey, your life looked like hell before, but now it looks like heaven. Why? Because Jesus came and touched you. Jesus made the difference in your life. Jesus is the one who paid the penalty for your sins. He's the one that's redeemed you. You didn't do anything but faith into him. Now you're beloved. Now you're loved. Now you're forgiven. Now you're sanctified. Now you're growing in that. Now you're moving toward Christ-likeness in your life. That's who you are. Your identity has been changed. The variable is faith. Question before us as we look at this text this morning is, will the Christ follower, will those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior choose to believe God by putting the truth of the Word of God into action? This past Sunday, as I mentioned earlier, I began a three-part series that we're simply entitling Vision 2024. It's a vision that we're laying out before our church family, just saying, this is what we believe the next three years looks like for us, and the things that we want to do, and the things that we want to accomplish, and and what it's going to take for that to take place. Last Sunday, we looked at Exodus 35 and 36, and there we saw that God is the one who stirs his people's heart to embrace the vision that he sets before them. He leads his people to do things that they never would have imagined, never could have imagined. We, we kind of went, we, we went through this three years ago when we set that vision before you. We use Habakkuk 1.5 where God says that I'm going to do something so great in your midst, so wonderful, so marvelous, so glorious, so mighty that you wouldn't believe it even if I told you now. We've seen that over the last three years. God has done tremendous things through us as a fellowship. We've been talking about vision and prophetic vision. And what we've said about that is prophetic vision always produces two things. It produces redemptive passion, and it produces a responsive action. See, we're going to love what God loves, and we're going to engage in what he is doing. Vision that he sets before us begets venture. It means as he's calling us to move with him, it means we have to move with him. And it's a journey where we can't see always what's right in front of us. We can't see down the road. Many times it's just the next step. And yet we trust him and we believe him and we take that step. It's about faith. We embarked on this. We've been embarking on this for the six years I've been your pastor here at Red Lane. We've experienced that as we walk this vision venture out, we've sensed the Lord leading us to tweak our methods and and to update our facilities. We've seen the Lord lead us to lean more into missions and and. Back in the day, maybe the way we could be described is we're a mission church, which means we pray and give to missions, which are wonderful and and needed. But we want to go as well. We've seen more and more people go and and be part of missions. Unfortunately, last year was a wash, and no one got on a plane to go anywhere, or much less to go across the county to do much. But we've been leaning in to missions, and we will continue to do so. While the vision produces redemptive passion and it it produces a responsive action, here's what happens when we have a vision setting before us. It forces us to a crisis of decision. What are we going to do? Will we embrace it? Will we trust? Will we move? Will we go to action? See, it forces us to ask, will we be a people who shrink back in fear of the unknown or will we be the people who boldly take that step of faith? 
and to say, Lord, you're leading, you're faithful, you're good, you've been trustworthy from the beginning of time, you're going to continue to be trustworthy, I will believe you. The crisis of belief. Will we fear or will we faith? Fear leads to disbelief. Fear leads to rebellion. There's examples of that all throughout the word of God. And yet at the same time, we see that faith leads to blessing. Here's another thing that faith leads to, more faith. See, if I will trust the Lord today with what he's calling and asking me to do, I will be able to trust him with more tomorrow and more the next day, more the day after that, more the next year and the next, next decade, the next century, more that we step out and trust God with our lives and future and families and all of that, the more we'll be able to trust him going down the road. Fear leads to rebellion. Faith leads to blessing and more faith. So as a church, we need a vision. God's people always need a vision. Good vision allows us to see things crisply and clearly. If I did not have these little things on the lens of my eyes, I wouldn't be able to see any of your wonderful faces this morning. If I didn't have these things right here, I wouldn't be able to, well, I could, but it's really strained on my eyes to read what's in this little tiny Bible that I seem to carry around. One of these days, I'm going to get one of those giant preaching Bibles that's going to be like this, turning the pages so I can see it. But we need things that help us to see, things that help us to clearly articulate what's going on. It ensures the propensity to be productive. If we can't see, we can't produce. Vision doesn't guarantee productivity, but what it does is it paves the way for it. It gives us an opportunity to say, here's where we need to be going. Now I got to go in that direction, which requires a heart that believes God. In Ephesians, what we see is Paul's magnifying the power of Christ through the gospel to redeem sinners and make alive both the Jew and the Gentile. Paul argues that if Jesus can resurrect the dead, think about this, if Jesus can do that, then surely, surely he can enable believers to live out this life they have in Christ. So what we find in Paul's words to to the Ephesians there in Ephesus is orthodoxy is meeting orthopraxy in inconceivable ways. So for us, as we begin to consider the vision that we believe the Lord has for us as a church In the days ahead, we need to remember that if Christ can resurrect the dead, if he can change your lives, moving you from spiritual death to spiritual life, then surely he can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think in regards to this vision we call Vision 2024. Look over there in the text, and let's read these verses. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Let me just be transparent this morning. I was going to preach. I'd been planning to preach out of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 today and next Sunday. So I've just postponed that. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 next Sunday. And this week as I was at the state convention with uh, Nate and Rick and Steve, uh, this verse was plastered on about everything we did over those two and a half days. And just began to think, man, that's the verse for us. It comes down to will we believe God in all parts of our life? Right here especially with what we're talking about. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
these verses that Paul has written here, these verses that we've read, are part of a larger passage that is a prayer of sorts. If we were to go back to verse 14 and read down through verse 21, the end of this chapter, we would see there this prayer that, that Paul is making. It's culminating this three-chapter emphasis on orthodoxy. What should we believe as a follower of Jesus? Remember, Ephesians 1 is telling us who we are in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2 is telling us how we're saved. Ephesians 3 is talking about all the other doctrines, the, the mystery of the gospel that comes into that and, and how we're fellow heirs, Jew and Gentile together, all through the work of the gospel. So Paul is explaining this. He, he's offering a plea to God that, that also serves as a plea for us as believers. See, Paul's pleading with believers to respond to God's sovereign provision in salvation. And then he's pleading with God to motivate people to do that. Calls upon the Lord to activate believers' power so that they can become faithful children and thereby glorify their heavenly Father. As we come to verse 20, what we find here is what we might refer to as a pyramid progression. Uh, it's this kind of building uh, concept as he describes this, what it means to walk in faith, what it means to walk out this doctrine. We see this progression taking place. See, Paul knows that what, what he desires to see in the Ephesian believers is not going to happen through their power, but it's going to happen through Christ's power. So he's saying, Lord, we understand that you can do it. We understand that you can do more than we can even believe about that. We understand that you're going to do it through us as believers. And it's going to be for your renown, for your glory, for the fame of your powerful and wonderful name. And today we need to understand we cannot do anything on our own, but we can do anything with the help of God. Nothing's impossible when it's in the proximity of the will of God for your life. Nothing is impossible. If you read through the Gospels, you come to stories where Jesus will do a miracle and the disciples are just blown away by it. He's like, it's almost like Jesus is nonchalant about it. It's like, that's nothing. If you have faith, you could say to that mountain, get up and, and move to the, to the sea and it would do it. We read that thinking, yeah, right. Right? That's how we read those verses. That, that could never happen. Why? It's because you don't believe it. But if you actually had faith, God could do the absolute impossible through your life. Our living needs to match with our believing. Paul picks up this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Orthodoxy needs to be coupled with orthopraxy. So what we're saying here is this is how we are to believe. Now we're, let's go walk in a manner worthy of this calling. This is how we're to live. Now let's go live it out. This is what we're to do. Now let's go do it. And so as we talk about vision 2024, we, we need to look at it through the lens of these verses. And with that in mind, I want to share with you four progressive elements that we need to see. First thing is this. God is able. That's a simple statement. And yet it is extremely profound. Because I believe we forget that at times. I believe that we forget that God is able, and we, we lose sight of him. We lose sight of, of the big picture. We lose sight of ourselves. We begin to look at ourselves the way we shouldn't look. We think that we are able, or we see that we're incapable. But in both of those instances, we don't look and recognize that God is able. 
But Paul tells us right here that God is able. Tode dunamino is the Greek. I know you're just mesmerized by that, right? <laughs> now to him who is able. You say, why would you use these words? Oh, I'm going to talk about these words for just a moment. The Greek term dunamai, which is the, the root word of this word used here, is similar to the other Greek term that we hear so much about, dunamis. That's the word that we derive our English word dynamite. It speaks of explosive power. And so that's dunamis. Here, this word dunamai, it, it's a little different. It speaks of possessing the capability of accomplishing a task or directive. So it's not explosive power, but it's power that is capable of accomplishing great things. Whether through the personal side of our lives or, or through external resources, what the Word of God is saying here is now to him who is able. In other words, God is able. He's capable. He's the one who comes alongside you. He's the one who's inside of you, and he's the one who accomplishes it. God is able, capable, powerful. Paul makes it clear that God is the one who is able. He's not saying, Ephesians, you are so wonderful. You're capable. Look what you have done. Look what you're going to do. Look at the things you have on your resume. He's not saying any of those things. He says, no, now to him who is able. That's the Lord. He possesses the capability of accomplishing the task set before his people. After all, as we think about this, he is the one who set the task, and he's the one who resources the task. Before we get the cart before the horse and think that we can do things on our own, he's the one who absolutely gives everything to us. He gives us the ability to think. He gives us the ability to go to work. He gives us the ability to make an income. He gives us the ability to use our hands and our eyes and our feet. Whatever we want to use to accomplish a task, it does not come from you or, you or I. It comes from the Lord. He is able. Do you believe that? God is able. He's the well of wisdom. He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the guide who provides. God is able. Secondly, God is able to do more. I told you it was a progression. God is able. God is able to do more. Now to him who is able to do what? Far more abundantly. How much more? Far more. How much more? Far more abundantly. What do you mean by that? More than you could ask or think is what Paul's saying. Do you get his point? Do you get how he's driving it home? He's very clear that it's not something you can do. In fact, it's not even something you would think about. God has already thought of it. God has already resourced it. God has already paved the way. We just by faith need to walk in it. You think about our Christian lives. Here's a question. How many times have you hampered the Lord's activity in and through your life because you just simply failed to believe he wanted to do more. Now, before you think I'm one of those TV preachers, name it and claim it and all that stuff, that's not what this is about. That's just simply saying, Lord, when you lead us, you don't lead us into easy things. You lead us into hard things. You know, when we launched New Day three years, three plus years ago, that was a huge, huge deal. We're not a church full of Fortune 500 CEOs and uh, high-dollar lawyers and, and, and brain surgeons and, and, and people like, you know, big-dollar type people that we tend to think of. When God's going to do something, we've got to have that caliber of person. No, we're, not, we're not that. But we're a church that's faithful. We're a church that's generous. We're a church that's 
willing to say, I don't know how, but I just believe God. And he did more than we could ask or think. And I believe he's going to continue to do that. Problem is, sometimes we just don't trust God. I want to take you to a story, Old Testament, that kind of fleshes this out. 2 Kings chapter 13. It's going to be on the screen, so you don't have to, uh, to try to find that in the Old Testament. You just leave that up to me. 2 Kings chapter 13. Story here between King Jehoiaz and Elisha, the prophet. You probably know this story, but listen to verses 14 through 19. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, or Jehoiash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. And so he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Assyrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until, you've, until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Now, why in the world would we read a text about some wicked king in Israel's history and a prophet that's about to die? And such random, arbitrary weirdness of shooting an arrow out the window and declaring victory over the enemy. What what is that all about? Well, here's what we see in that text. This wicked king comes down to the prophet of God and refers to him basically as a father to him, a spiritual father to him, which is... Ironic at best, because he's wicked and doesn't follow God's word. He, in fact, the word of God tells us he follows in the sins of Jeroboam of Nebat. If you know the Old Testament, you know that he was a wicked, wicked man. And yet he listens to Elisha. He believes him to shoot the arrow out the window. He does everything that the prophet says. He even bangs the arrows on the ground three times. What happens here, though, is he doesn't exhaust that. He doesn't believe God for more. He doesn't believe God is going to do the immeasurable in his life. And so this wicked, evil, faithless man uh, comes to the prophet. He begs him for help against his enemy. Elisha tells him to shoot. He strikes the ground. He does all of that stuff. And yet he does not strike it more than he should have because he failed to believe God for more. How many times do we fail to believe God for more? Like Elisha, the Apostle Paul had experienced God doing far more abundantly than what he could ask or think in his life. We too, like Paul, should believe God for more. Why why should our vision ever be limited as the people of God? Why do we at times tend to dream small dreams? Have you ever asked yourself that question? As you've gotten older, maybe you're middle-aged now, maybe you're over the hump and you're moving towards your senior years, just being nice this morning, right? And those big dreams you had as a young man or young woman, you don't even think about anymore. Why? You stop believing God for them? You stop believing God for them? I think that's what, a, what Jehoiaz is dealing with here. He didn't believe God 
for more. God is the God who is able to do more. Thirdly, I want you to see this. God is able through us. God is able according to the power, what Paul says, at work within us. That's who God is. Nevertheless, nevertheless, he does not and never has needed human involvement in his work. Before we think that God has to have us to accomplish, we need to realize he doesn't need us. And if you don't believe that, which one of you were around in Genesis 1 and 2? None of us, except when Adam and Eve came into existence, but they had nothing to do with those things coming into his No, God says, let there be light. There was light. God said, let there be a cow. There was a cow. God said, let there be this mountain. And there was that mountain. It was all because of him. He is sufficient in and of himself. He does not need you or I. And yet God in his sovereignty, God in his mercy and goodness chooses to use you and I. It's the power of God working through us. It's what we find here from the Apostle Paul. God is working through his people. See, God is working big things through his people. Again, working through his people is how the Lord largely works today. He calls us as the people of God to pray and to give and to go. We're his hands and his feet. We're, we're going and serving in the name and in the power of Christ. Could God do all of those things by himself? Yes. But for some reason, in his grace, he's chosen to use us. It's a mystery. It's part of the mystery of the gospel, that, that he would redeem us and, and then allow an a inferior version of that grace that has redeemed us to personify that grace to others. Do you follow the logic there? God brings you from death to life, and yet you and I all know that we still struggle with the flesh that we're encased in. We still struggle with the things of this world. And so we give a very poor image of what Jesus really looks like, and yet he still uses that poor image to spread the gospel to other people. Our teenagers, many of them, Went to learn how to share the gospel yesterday at one of our sister churches, and, and what a beautiful thing that is. We all need to be trained to be better equipped to share the gospel. Here's what I know about sharing the gospel. Many times you will stumble your way through it, and God will use you. Many times you'll royally make a mess of your life, and God will use your stumbling to lead people to Jesus. He doesn't need you. He delights in using you. God is able through us. God is able to do his work, carry out his vision through us. Fourth thing, God is able for his glory. God is able for his glory. Look there in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. He's able to do far more abundantly all that we could ask or think for what purpose? For his glory forever and ever and ever. The fame of his great name. As we think about our church and the path God has us on, as we think about what we're calling Vision 2024, this is a new phase of this adventure that God has us traveling Hey, here's what I know about the future, and I don't know a whole lot about the future, but here's what I know. We're always going to be on this road. 
I think sometimes uh, church families would love to just be like, can we just rest a while? Can we just rest a while? Do we need another emphasis? Sometimes as, the, as a leader, I, st- I get in the middle of all that. I'm like, oh, this is exactly where the Lord wants us. And in the midst of leading out that, I'm thinking, man, it would be lot nice to be sitting on the sideline right now. It'd be nice to be coasting right now. It would be easy. Here's what I know about that. It would be dangerous and boring. Dangerous because we would be more likely to get involved in sinful activity. You ever read the story about King David when he should have been going out to war? What was he doing? He was peeping. (laughs) One of our heroes in the faith was a dude that would look in your window. Distract (laughs) him. Love you, Ben. (laughs) I don't even know where I was at with that. We need to be in the midst of God's will for our life. That's the safest, most productive place to be. And so what does that mean for us? Well, as a local church, we want to be a a people that reaches our community. I I believe all of us can attest to this. All of us can confirm this. We want to reach our community. We want to impact our nation. We understand that the gospel is the hope. We can't legislate ourselves to morality. We can't legislate ourselves to fearing God. It comes through the gospel. We want to be a church that touches the nations. And for that reason, Vision 2024 is about enriching our ministry offerings. We want to do more right here at home. We want to do more to make disciples through expanding our small group ministry, doing more with D groups, doing more with our students, doing more with our children. We want to enhance, or I should say, enrich our ministry offerings right here. We want to expand our Acts 1 8 strategy. The Bible tells us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That doesn't mean we do one, then the next, then the next, then the next. No, it's simultaneous. We want to plant churches here. We want to reach people here. We want to do that in our state. We want to do that in our nation. We want to do that simultaneously among the nations. We want to do more. We want to enhance our campus, continuing to enhance our campus for future growth, future ministry. And then we want to establish margin for, mu- for ministry in the future. This fresh vision has everything to do with our hearts. Do we have hearts that believe God is able to do more through us for his glory? I believe the answer to that all-important question comes down to three components. See, if we would have hearts that believe God, then we must first be submitted to the Father's will. If we were to go back up in verse 14 of this chapter, we would see there Paul bowing his knees, getting before the Father, praying on behalf of the church, praying on behalf of the Lord, working through his church. Paul understood that if we're going to believe God, our hearts must first be surrendered and submitted to his will, yielded to his leadership. Secondly, it means that we must be strengthened by the Spirit and his power in our life. Verse 16 talks about how we are to be strengthened with power through his spirit. We have no power in and of ourselves. Our power resides only in the spirit of God, working through his church. And then thirdly, it means that we're going to be substantiated in the love of Christ. The gospel is how we know the love of Christ. It's through the gospel that we're transformed from death to life and from fear to faith. You see, it's the gospel that causes us to believe God. And trust him with our lives. Grounded and rooted in the love of God is what Paul's talking about. 
If those three things are characteristic of who we are, we can have hearts that believe God. We can have hearts that say, Lord, I don't understand how it's going to happen. I don't really understand maybe what it's going to look like down the road. I really can't see further than this next step, but I know you to be good, and I know you to be faithful. I'm going to take the step. I'm going to take the step. You remember Joe and Jean, those figments of my imagination? Joe taught us that it's possible to know a great deal about a car, to know the engine, the transmission, the handling on the road, and yet never use it to go anywhere. Gene taught us it's possible to know very little about a car and use it every single day. And for us, it's possible to know a great deal about the Lord and yet not live by faith. This year is the 175th anniversary of this church, 225 if you go back to when our church started meeting basically as a campus of Old Powhatan Baptist before we officially became our own church. In 1796, people right here on Red Lane Plantation began to meet as a people of God. 1846, they organized into the local church known as Red Lane Baptist Church. And for 175, for 225 years, if you will, God has been faithful and good to this people. There have been times of up and down. I just got to believe that. I don't know all of the history of this church, but I know humans. And I know humans are oftentimes prone to wonder and prone to stray. And yet at the same time, humans are are prone to, to listen to God and heed God and walk with God and believe God. God's been good to us. We've seen the gospel preached. We've seen disciples made. We've seen churches planted. We've seen missionaries sent. We've seen our community served all because of the goodness of God, because this church followed his heart. And that's not over. It goes back to that thing I was saying just a moment ago. Sometimes we like to be set back and be like, man, that was a great run. Now let's kind of go to lunch. I'm for lunch, but not in this sense, right? I'm for taking a pause, but we never take a pause when we walk with the Lord. Vision 2024 is about enriching those ministry offerings. You see, we want to be able to do more to disciple people in our community, It's about expanding our Acts 1-8 strategy. We do want to invest more in the work of the gospel by planting new churches, sending more teams and dollars to the mission field. We want to, here's a a fun fact with that. You're going to learn more about next Sunday. We want to double our missions giving annually over the next three years. Right now, our budget for missions giving, not including cooperative dollars, not including Lottie Moon Christmas offering, not including Annie Armstrong Easter offering, but our, our budget dollars for missions is $6,000. We want to take that to 12, to 24, to 48 in three years. That's big stuff. You know what that's going to require? Us as the people of God saying, we believe, we trust. Where does that begin? It begins with the tithe. Man, if you're not tithing as a follower of Jesus, you need to start looking at your finances. You need to start being on your knees saying, Lord, help me to do this. I want to trust you. I want to believe you. I want to be honoring. I want to be obedient. I want to give joyfully so that we can do more as a church. We want to enhance our campus. You say, we're doing that. Yeah, we're going to renovate this whole floor, but that's not all that we need to do. 
When we get finished with the renovation this spring, it's going to start right after Christmas. When we finish up at the end of March, first part of April, just in time for Easter, this whole main floor right here, worship center foyer, this hall behind me is going to be awesome. It's going to be wonderful. It's also going to mean that our adults that are meeting in small groups down below us in the lower level are going to be off that floor, which means that whole space is going to be for children's ministry. It's going to be much more safe, much more secure. And so we want to do some things to that area that makes it feel more like children's ministry. We want to enhance our campus. We want to establish margin for future ministry, which means we want to work diligently to be debt free from all of this. We don't want to be strapped to a banknote for the next 20 years. Do you? I don't. I I don't want that. We want to pay it off as quickly as possible, preferably within six years. And so that's what we're doing. We're taking these three Sundays to share, to explain, to talk about this vision. And my prayer is that like the Hebrews in Exodus we looked at last week, that God would stir our hearts, that we would just just trust the Lord there. Uh, As we see it here in Ephesians 3, that we would be the people of God that says, I believe you, I trust you, you are able, you're able to do more, you're able to do things through me, you're able to do this for your glory. And I'm I'm in, I'm all in. And I want you to know as your pastor, I am all in, okay? I'm all in. For New Day three plus years ago, when we went through that whole process of pledging, and, and we're not going to do pledges this year. I'm just going to kind of get ahead of the game here and tell you some things we're not, I was going to say next Sunday. We're not doing pledges where you're going to turn in a thing to the church and say, I'm going to give X amount. No, that's going to be between you and the Lord, right? My wife and I, Kara and I, last time we went and did this three plus years ago, we went through this. We looked at our finances and we're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I don't know about that, but we're going to just trust the Lord with the number he put on our hearts. You know what the beautiful thing about that is? He provided it. He provided it. You say, how did he do that? Lots of different ways. But namely, my wife got a really good job. That always helps, amen? <laughs> that always helps. God's able. We didn't know that. I didn't understand that. We've always had the plan that when our youngest would go to kindergarten, we'd say, all right, Kara's going back to the workforce. She intended to go in a different direction. An opportunity was opened up for her last summer. She stepped into it having no, no past experience in this field. And she's doing well, all because the Lord's blessing there. See, when we take that step of faith, we don't know what it's going to look like way down the road. But when you take that step of saying, God, I'm going to believe you right now, then there's more faith to take the next and then the next and then the next. You fulfill the things God's called you to do. It's awesome. It's wonderful. Here's the thing. I just spent 10 minutes or more talking about money. The Lord doesn't want nor need your money. He wants your heart. You say, that's preacher talk. It's not preacher talk. It's Bible talk. He doesn't need your money. He owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, that's an expression. He owns it all. He doesn't need your heart. He wants you. He wants you. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're walking in the guilty distance and he doesn't have you, that's what he wants. For you this morning, you need to say, I'm coming home, whatever that is. Is it sin in your life that you're holding on to? Let's throw it aside. Let's confess it. Let's repent of it. Let's come home. He wants your heart. Whatever that sin may be. Maybe it's the sin of I'm just not faithful in the area of the tithe and offering. And you're saying, "I, I don't believe God for that. Put that on the altar and trust him with it. Malachi 3.10 is a perfect 
promise for you. Test me in this. See if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until there is no more need. God is faithful. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and listening to this God who just keeps talking and talking and talking and talking. And you've never come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You might be religious, you might have grown up in the church, you might have played church for a long time, but you know that you're not in a relationship with Jesus. Again, God doesn't want anything but your heart. And today the greatest need in your life is to confess your sin before a holy God. Ask Him to forgive it and trust Him with your life. That's the greatest thing you need and the greatest thing you should do today. Where's your heart? Do you believe God? Are you coming to the Lord as a Christian? Are you coming to the Lord as a person who's lost and dead in sins and trespasses, Paul would tell us in Ephesians? Where's your heart?